Good afternoon and welcome to the uh, MLP industry. I guess it was supposed to be a round table, but more like a rectangle. My name is Michael Jabbar. I cover exchange traded funds and closed end funds from Morgan Stanley Wealth Management. Um, I have prepared a number of questions for our panelists, but before we begin, I'm going to let them take a minute or two just to introduce themselves and what they do at their respective firms. Yeah, hi, my name is uh, Ganesh Joyce. I work at Goldman Sachs Asset Management, where we manage about $8 billion in uh, assets in MLPs across a uh, wide spectrum of uh, vehicles, ranging from separately managed accounts to open-end funds, closed-end funds. Hi, my name is Ed Ryan. I'm a co-founder of InfraCap. Uh, we run a series of ETFs focused on generating income. Among them are AMZA, an actively managed MLP ETF, PFFR, which focuses on preferred shares issued by real estate investment trusts, and another PFFA, which is an actively managed U.S. preferred stock fund. And I'm Brian Sully with Tortoise Capital Advisors. Uh, we're based in Kansas City. Uh, have a, a number of products really focused mostly on the energy and particularly the MLP and pipeline space. About 20 billion under management with a little over 16 billion of that uh, in, in MLPs and pipelines. In particular, we've got five closing funds focused on energy as well as an interval fund. Uh, we have uh, three SMAs and uh, two open in, or three open end funds as well. All right, great. Well, let's, let's jump into it. I'm going to start with you, Brian. And just to set the stage, obviously, there's been a ton of volatility um, in the MLP market the last few years. I don't know if you want to start, say, in 2015 and take a minute or two and just walk us sort of with the dramatic decline in commodity prices and where the space has been the last few years. Yeah, kind of, kind of jumping into the way back machine there. Uh, back, Michael and I were talking beforehand, it feels like we've kind of started this, this panel off the same way a couple times. And when one similar, you just insert X number of years since oil last saw $100 a barrel. Uh, we're coming up on, on four years now, since July of 2014. So really a, a fairly prolonged, at this point, commodity price bear market. And I'm, I'm sure as many of you who have been invested in the midstream space are aware, um, you know, the business model of a pipeline company, uh, be it MLP, the GPs, or, or the independents, um, you know, at least academically, isn't really tied to commodity prices per se. Uh, you know, most of these, and, and I'm being very kind of grossly oversimplistic here, but, but broadly, you know, the business model is volume equals revenue. And so with the idea that, that revenues come as volumes flow, um, it, it's, it's actually been a relatively good period for these companies because the volumes have increased over that time period. But um, you know, getting back to, to the, the main point here is that the, the commodity market has been down. And so, so the question, is, and certainly with that is sentiment. So the question is, um, you know, what's the effect on these companies? And, and despite the fact that the business model remains strong, um, you, you have that commodity price uh, weighing down on, on the sector a little bit. And so you have some negative, you've seen a significant amount of negative sentiment. And, and that has, I think, been the biggest trouble with the space. Um, you, you look at, like I said, four years now, and, and you see companies broadly doing what they said they'd done, um, which the sector as a whole um, you know, has, has grown distributions. Uh, we've seen individual cuts, but on the whole, distributions have grown. Um, and, and you're just kind of seeing a lot of these companies continue to grow with volumes and, and look to the other side. You fast forward to you know, 2017, you know, now we're at a period where commodity prices have been rebounding, certainly on the oil side, uh, if not so much in natural gas, um, even though we're seeing volumes grow considerably on the natural gas side. 
And, and now sentiment is starting to trickle back, particularly over about the last two months. You go to, to mid-March um, and you've seen sentiment really turn since then. And, and now with oil prices, with, with WTI pushing into the low to mid-70s, you know, Brent uh, jumping above 80 here, um, you're really starting to see maybe some of the first signs of, of a turn on that sentiment. So you know, hopefully we're at the point where the, the cycle is coming back around and, and maybe we're no longer giving the speech here about the volatility, the up and down on prices, and, and we're looking more towards just a focus on the business model, a focus on the volumes flowing through. That's great. And Ganesh, I'm going to um, jump over to you. And it's, you know, the most recent shoe to drop in the MLP space was the FERC ruling uh, earlier this year. Could you just briefly uh, explain to the audience what happened and why the reaction, uh, you know, was, was so severe on this front and, and whether or not the ruling maybe gets reversed or what are your thoughts around that? Yeah, sure. So I think uh, on the 15th of March, the FERC, which is the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, it's a government agency that regulates interstate pipelines. Uh, came out and reversed what was at the point, you know, at that time a 13-year-old policy on how certain pipelines could uh, adjust their tariffs. And specifically what they did was, uh, you know, they said that any pipeline that uses the cost-based approach or the cost-of-service approach, as they call it, uh, to set tariffs can no longer include income taxes as part of their expenses. Uh, and that resulted in, uh, you know, a lot of MLPs that owned interstate gas pipelines to sell off very significantly because... Uh, not being allowed to include those expenses would result in a f drop in their EBITDA, and and therefore you know we saw a pretty big sell-off. It was initially uh, quite widespread and you know uh, not not necessarily very differentiated, uh, but as time has gone by and as people have done more analysis on who it impacts and how how widespread the impact is going to be, I think we've seen uh, you know we've seen performance um, differentiation. And at the same, and, and I would also say that we've now recovered. Uh, you know, we are now on the Allerian Index, which is the benchmark for most uh, managers in the space. Uh, we are now higher than where we were uh, before the uh, before the FERC announcement. So, uh, we th we don't think that this is going to be a huge uh, impact for the sector. Uh, it will it will impact a few companies in a very significant way, but not necessarily. Uh, everyone in a in a big way. I think that's the way to, to kind of think about this uh, this issue. So you're not overanalyzing as far as if it gets reversed or, or, or not. No, I I doubt very much that that we will see a reversal in this because this is a policy change, uh, you know. And uh, once a policy is made, it's hard to uh, kind of you know reverse it within you know call it six months, I guess, because uh, the the whole issue was remanded back to FERC from a court, uh, and so the, the FERC took about a year and a half to uh, to come. To to come to this conclusion, so I doubt very much that we will see a reversal. Sure. Okay, Ed, uh, over to you. Given all the recent volatility, high cost of capital, tax cuts at the end of last year, and the recent FERC ruling, um, you know, do you think we see more MLPs convert into C corps? You know, uh, obviously, t you know, today, given uh, some recent uh, transactions, it's a pretty good day to have this panel. You know, what what are your thoughts on sort of M and A and things like that in the space? Well, with three deals being announced today, it seems that we've come a long ways down the course that most of us have been expecting. And there, there's one big one sitting out there which has yet to announce it, their timing. That's uh, the ETP complex. But we would expect to see something happening there as well. Uh, our perspective on this is that it may open up which just kind of put us past uh, what has been a big drag for the investor's perspective on investing in the MLP sector. 
it's best that these things get put behind us and that everybody can understand uh, what the structure looks like going forward. So from an investing point of view, we think it's a positive and that it just positions us well to uh, move forward from here. Sure, and, and upon sort of some of these transactions or deals, one of the most frequent questions that I get is, does that mean you're gonna automatically see a dividend cut? Or do you really need to look MLP by MLP? How should investors approach that? Well, what we saw happen today was pretty much what we expected. We thought that the uh, Williams deal, which we anticipated, would not generate a very significant cut. And so it kind of fell into that realm. Uh, but it is, it, it comes with the territory, we think, that we would see dividend reduction. And do you view it as a, you know, I don't want to say a positive, but, you know, we just have to get past it, right? You announce the cut and then hopefully look forward. Is that the right way to approach it? I know it does hurt current uh, investors, but is that the way you, you, you tend to approach it? Yeah, we manage a portfolio of the best MLPs. We recognize that the industry is going through a structural change, and we just try to position ourselves as well as we can for that. And, and Mike, maybe to your point there, uh, you look out today and most of the market, uh, most all of the, the pipeline market is trading up on the news. So I think it speaks to, the, uh, to Ed's point there about the fact that we're getting a little more certainty in the space and getting these restructurings behind us takes um, you know, the, the uncertainty away and I think allows investors to look forward a little bit more. And I, I guess a, a question, Brian, for you, I mean, uh, how much more of the universe do you anticipate to, to undergo? I mean, is it like, do we see a few more or is it the bulk of the MLP universe that undergoes some type of change? Probably a few more, um, you know, it, and you can look at the simplifications kind of, it, it's not the exact same thing, but in concert with the elimination of, of IDRs in the space. Uh, and for those that aren't familiar with the, the phrase IDR, it's the incentive distribution rights. Uh, long story short, it's, uh, as part of the creation of an MLP, um, you have these IDRs in place that kind of align the interest, uh, particularly early on, of the LP unit holders alongside the GP. Uh, over time though, especially when assets stop dropping down to the MLPs, it can become a little burdensome. And so a trend that's been going on in the sector um, over the last several years, and, and particularly has accelerated lately, is the elimination of those IDRs. And oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes, that comes part and parcel uh, with these uh, combinations and simplifications. And, and so if you look back, uh, say, to, to 2012, really the big names out there that eliminated their IDRs were Magellan and EPD. And, and they were kind of you know, head and shoulders above everybody else having done that. Uh, over the last five years or so, um, you know, we saw about another quarter of the overall MLP market uh, cap eliminate their IDRs. So you come into 2018, about 50% of the IDRs have been eliminated. Uh, we anticipated a, another acceleration this year uh, and, and next year, figured between 18 and 19, we'd see yet another 25% of the market cap um, you know, remove those IDRs. And so you get to the end of 2019, at least toward us our outlook, is that fully 75% of the IDRs will be, be out of the market. And you know, back to the, the question Mike asked uh, Ganesh earlier about the FERC ruling, I think some of those that were on the table for 18 and 19 got accelerated as a result. And so that's why we're talking about you know, Williams and Bridge Chenier, uh, recently you know, Tallgrass as well um, has gone through this and a couple others. So these are all names that uh, we kind of saw coming down the pike in terms of looking towards that combination. Uh, but we're seeing some of that accelerate uh, a little bit here. But it's no one that wasn't already on the table for 18 and 19. I don't think uh, in names that still have a lot of drop down or you, know, you look at some of the recent IPOs like a BP, um, Dominion, 
Dominion might be a little bit different actually, but you have BP, um, you have Valero, PSXP, these are all still big drop-down stories, um, and we, we don't expect to see any of those types of, of names go through a simplification anytime soon. Sure, and I, you know, I think one of the, and I, I, don't, I don't know the taxation all that well, but you know, one of the things that, that I tend to get a lot of questions about upon, you know, based on these transactions, and anyone can take this question, uh, you know, does this pose a, a tax issue for the holders of the MLP relative to, to say, the parent? Um, you know, and is there any way around that, and does the parent even look at that when making these decisions? Yeah, look, I think any time an MLP is acquired by a C-Corp, uh, even if it's a stock-for-stock -stock deal like the Williams transaction was this morning, it will be a taxable transaction. Uh, and we've seen plenty of them over the course of the last three or four years, starting with Kinder Morgan back in 2014. Uh, and so I think any time you have a C-Corp uh, acquiring an MLP, that will be a taxable transaction. It will result in a recapture of all of the return of capital distributions that, you know, that an investor has received over time. Sure. And, and, and look, I think companies try to manage around this issue, but there is really no way uh, to get around it. I mean, if your GP is a C-Corp, you run the risk of a big recapture bill uh, at the end of desimplification. Do you think that uh, is one of the things that may be keeping retail out of the market? I know just based on our flows at Morgan Stanley, uh, you know, I think re retail is disenfranchised with MLPs, right, given all the volatility we've experienced. And then, you know, even on the individual MLP side, when we get these types of transactions, uh, that definitely has given the space somewhat of a negative connotation. Um, you know, are, are you seeing the investor base maybe change because of that? Uh, I I, I don't think the investor base has necessarily changed dramatically. I think we're seeing more institutions come in, but the sector remains predominantly a retail-focused, uh, you know, asset class, if you will. Um, I don't know that the risk of simplification is necessarily something that's keeping retail away. Uh, we feel uh, that it's more, you know, the result of some of these MLPs not doing the right things early on in the cycle, uh, you know, cutting distributions or simplifying their corporate structure. I think these are solutions that ought to have been implemented perhaps early in the cycle, uh, and yet what we saw was a bit of uh, foot dragging, I guess, which I think uh, disenfranchised some of the investors. Sure, so now, Ganesh, back to you. I, you know, one of the ways that, that we analyze the space, and it's a little bit oversimplified, you know, an oversimplification is look at sort of uh, credit spread, MLP credit spreads, and I think they've, for the most part, have hung in there. Uh, you know, can you just talk a little about that, and is that really a good gauge about how we should think about the space? Yeah, I think, and I think this is the biggest uh, kind of uh, takeaway. When, you, when anyone looks at the MLP space, what they will see is that while equities have lagged, uh, you know, over the last two or three years, the bond markets have been very accommodative for MLPs. Uh, spreads remain very competitive. Uh, you know, I think, I, I think recent bond offerings have gone, I think, 200 basis points above treasuries for 10-year deals, which which is, I think, great. I think uh, there is not much skittishness in the bond markets about MLPs, uh, and that speaks to, I think, the resiliency of the cash flows of these assets, number one. And I think it also speaks to the, uh, the comfort level that bondholders have in the sense that if something does go wrong, you can always cut the distribution at the MLP and provide some cushion for, uh, for the bond investors. What are, just for comparative purposes, what did those spreads look like back in 15 when obviously commodities really struggled? Yeah, I think they might have widened out quite a bit, I think, in, in the 15 and early 16 time frame when we saw $35 in crude and, and even $26 at one point at the low, uh, probably they were closer to 300 basis points at the time, uh, so we've kind of narrowed by about 100 basis points. Okay. Uh, Ed, over to you. Um, you know, I think one of the, the differentiators with, with some of your, you know, with one of your strategies at least is, is the call writing. Can you talk a little bit about that and, 
uh, how much uh, income it's adding to the portfolio, and are you, is it strictly just an income generator? Just some thoughts around that. It's a significant source of profits for the fund. Uh, we feel, we estimate that it adds, that the incremental income is in the range of, well, single to high, or high, low to, or mid to high single digits, <laughs> sorry. Uh, and it's, you know, it's an important part of the way we think active management can impact the returns in the fund. Uh, it also has, uh, can help moderate volatility. For instance, in 2017, uh, we uh, managed to outperform the benchmark. It was largely because of the profitability of the call writing. Uh, it was extraordinarily profitable. It offset the impact of our using leverage and uh, you know, added substantially to the return. You know, I, I should mention that we think it makes most sense to do the covered call writing strategy alongside uh, the use of leverage because we, we want to be invested in the sector and we don't want to find ourselves in a situation where when we get stock called away, we're underinvested. So we're, we're typically levered 20 to 25% of NAV. If we get some stock called away, we're still uh, fully participating. And we'll also be taking offsetting actions in order to be where we want, be positioned where we want to be. Just sort of digging in there, uh, number one, how do you obtain leverage? Is it through like a credit line? Uh, we have a line, as a 40 Act fund, you have to borrow from a bank. So most of the closed-end funds use BNP, and we do too. Okay. And then on, on the call writing piece, do you typically uh, you know, scale it? In other words, are, are you 100% overwritten at all times, or does it scale up and down based on the market? You know, if you looked at it on a notional value, it would be maybe a third of the portfolio. But on a, a market-adjusted basis, it's in the single digits. Okay. Well, that's uh, that, that certainly um, you know, is, is fair. Uh, I'm going I'm to go over to, um, uh, you know, to, 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 to Brian, and, and, you know, one of the most, uh, one of the narratives that, that's out there, and it's not so much right this second, but just go back a few months ago, is that, you know, fossil fuels are dead, and the world in a decade from now, it, it won't be using uh, as much oil, um, and that's why uh, oil prices will never see $100 a barrel again. So that narrative, you know, we, we, we definitely hear it from clients. Um, you know, what are your, what are your thoughts around that? Like, uh, is the market discounting, you know, 10, 15 years out, or do you think that's just ridiculous? Well, I think you kind of get the juxtaposition of some of our individual narratives and the circles we run in in our kind of private lives sometimes uh, with, the, with the, the data out there. You know, I think the big thing to think about when you think of where energy is going, you know, the U.S. is absolutely going to continue to grow clean energy. Um, you know, uh, solar is going to be big. Wind is going to be big. It, those, those are going to be the fastest growing sectors of power um, you know, for the next 20, 30 years at least, if, if, if not longer. Uh, but what people forget there is that the pie itself is growing. You know, the population of the U.S. continues to grow. I think everyone in this room uh, can think about how we're more energy intensive today than we were a year ago and more than five years ago. Um, and so while you continue to see renewables being the fastest growing source of power, um, fossil fuels for a long time are going to continue to be the biggest source of power. Um, and, and on top of that, the fact that the U.S. Uh, already has some of the, 
the cheapest, if not the cheapest, natural gas in the world, particularly out of the Marcellus and the Utica, you know, kind of in western Pennsylvania, eastern Ohio, um, and, and we're rapidly getting cheaper oil all the time and continuing to, to produce record levels of oil here. Um, I think that really drives the earnings and, and return story for pipelines. And if you think about these as, as global commodities, not just as, as something that we use locally, um, you start to think about billions of individuals in sub-Saharan Africa and uh, you know, the Indian subcontinent and, and across really all, all of, of Eastern Asia that are, are working to move into the middle class. And along with that comes a lot of demand for, for energy, uh, in particular fossil fuels. So I think in, in the lifetime of everyone in this room, we'll continue to see a lot of, of demand for fossil fuel. Um, we'll just see that continue to increase alongside other renewable sources. And, and you know, I, I think also one of the narratives that's, that, that is out there is, uh, you know, we're, we're seeing underinvestment and that could really actually, you know, cause some of these fossil fuels to spike in coming years. I mean, what are your thoughts around that? Yeah, absolutely. If you look at uh, what's been going on the last, really, you know, back to that idea of four years since we saw $100 oil, really only North America have been the, the only countries investing in, in new energy production. Uh, you look across you know, Russia, OPEC, um, some of the other emerging producers, there's been little to no in investment in, in terms of new oil production in particular, but I'll include natural gas in there. Um, and one of the things, if you look at a commodity outlook, of course, everyone has been saying the same thing. Um, you know, we expected prices to be a little bit range-bound. Of course, I think with some of the geopolitical issues this year, that's what's pushed WTI above 70. Uh, but in general, I think, at least from a fundamental standpoint, everyone expects oil to be around 60 to 70 this year, probably the same next year. It's when you start getting beyond that, 2020, 21, that the underinvestment that you speak of really um, comes comes to bear, and we're going to need some higher commodity prices in order to incentivize the rest of the world to invest in production again alongside North America. Ganesh, over, over to you, and you know, one of the, the big uh, stories, uh, especially when folks are selling MLPs to clients, is uh, you know, uh, the, the, the potential dividend growth rates and how they've been, you know, I guess historically maybe mid this to, to, to um, high single digits. What can we expect, you know, uh, going forward in coming years? And I don't know what the best way to sort of look at it, but maybe just, you know, looking at like a dealering or something. What can you anticipate yeah. sort of a dividend growth rate there? Yeah, so I think one of the one of the big takeaways or, or learnings from this downturn in energy for a lot of the MLPs has been the importance of self-funding, uh, at least to some degree. Because I think the, the old model for MLPs was pay out as much of the cash flows as you can in the form of distributions, and if you do need to raise capital for funding your projects, you do so with a public equity offering and, and a bond offering and whatnot. I think, I think what ends up happening in that sort of a situation is when you do get a downturn in oil prices as we did, the willingness of investors to provide you with that capital when you need it most goes away. Uh, and so I think uh, the big learning for a lot of management teams is that perhaps payout ratios should be lower going forward uh, and, and therefore, you know, we think that growth rates and distributions will likely be somewhat lower than years past. So you're right, I think in years past, distribution growth has been in the mid to high single digits. We think it's going to be somewhere in the 3 to 5% range going forward because a lot of these companies have very attractive investment opportunities. And what they don't want uh, to do is rely excessively on public funding and really rely more on internally generated cash flow. Uh, that's, that's fair. Um, Ed, I'm going to jump back to you, and 
you know, obviously the whole active passive debate uh, has gotten a lot of press, uh, you know, over the last few, uh, you know, call it five to ten years as, as passive management's done very well on a number of different asset classes. However, in the MLP sector, um, you know, arguably active managers have actually done pretty well versus the, you know, the broad benchmarks. Um, you know, what, what's your thought about, you know, active versus passive in, in the MLP space and why do we see such, you know, wide dispersion between different uh, MLPs? Well, actually, I would say a limiting factor is the concentration of the companies in the industry, where we all own a lot of the same stocks, and so then it becomes a, a weighting uh, function. You know, we've really chosen to emphasize our option strategy in line with the leverage, and in taking that approach, we feel like there is a structural advantage in putting those kinds of strategies together into a, an ETF. Sure, and I don't know if you guys want to jump in as far as sort of active versus passive. I mean, obviously you're going to all say active, right, because that's what you guys do, but, but why, uh, you know, why do you think uh, active managers have been able to generate some, some value actually in this particular sector? I mean, I'll, I'll take a shot and then. Yeah, go ahead. I mean, look, I, I would say that it, it, it has to do also, I think, to some degree with the way the uh, benchmark indices are, are constructed. Uh, you know, when you look at, let's say, maybe 10 years ago, uh, we had maybe 60 MLPs out there, and the Illyrian index had 50. And so you pretty much had full coverage in the index, and maybe it was more difficult to, uh, to beat the benchmark back then. But as time has gone by and we've seen you know, so many IPOs over the last 10 years, and the index has expanded from 60 stocks to maybe 100 stocks. Uh, I think the ability of active managers to play outside the benchmark and find some of these interesting opportunities has allowed them to uh, to outperform. And and I would also say that, you know, when we think about energy infrastructure, I, I think we sometimes tend to limit our thinking just to MLPs, but there's a whole universe of C-Corps out there which own lots of infrastructure assets which provide some interesting opportunities. So, I don't know, Brian, if you had... You know, yeah, I had kind of two thoughts, and the first really echoes uh, what Ganesh was saying there in, in terms of the, the universe is relatively small. You're looking at, at basically 60 ML, midstream MLPs um, and another 25 GPs slash independent pipeline companies, and that's the entirety of, of the midstream universe. So on one hand, you, you can really kind of throw muscle at these companies and, and know all these, these names inside and out as a manager. Uh, and the other piece, I think, digs in a little more deeply to these companies companies uh, by virtue of the fact that a, a pipeline asset in most cases is a very capital intensive multi-billion dollar asset, um, you get some visibility at the asset level for some of these firms that you don't necessarily get in other sectors. And so I think some of the things you can do around sensitivity analyses, looking at a variety of you know, micro and, and macroeconomic exogenous shock, shocks to these companies um, really gives you some insight that is a little bit harder to do when you're benchmarking against a broader swath or you know, particularly if you're thinking about something like say the Russell 3 Sure, no, it's definitely fair. So listen, we have about 10 minutes left. I have a couple more questions, but I want to give all of you in the audience some, some time, so please, in the back there. Thanks. I've got a couple of questions, but they're both related. And Ed, I, I want to just go back to something you said. You were talking about the ETP complex. Um, and the potential for it to convert to a, a C-Corp or have something similar happen to it. But then you made the comment that you didn't expect, um, you know, much further to happen after that. 
Um, we've had a number of them so far. What I'm wondering really is, you know, if it's good for them, why wouldn't it be good for everybody else? And then let me just stop. I got one more question. I'm going to give that one to Brian. Uh, maybe I'll take a shot at it first and then my colleagues can jump in. I think, look, when you choose to become a C-Corp, in many cases it's an irreversible decision. Uh, I think corporate tax reform has brought down the tax rate substantially and has narrowed the advantage on a headline basis between MLPs and C-Corps. But who's to say that five years from now or ten years from now we won't get another administration that goes back to a 35% tax rate? I think, I think there is a big trade-off uh, here between you know, making what will be a permanent and irreversible decision based upon what might be a, a short-term kind of policy change. I think that's what's causing some of these management teams to be a bit more cautious about converting to C-Corps. The ones we've seen so far uh, have been really driven by a need because of the FERC policy change, for example, or perhaps because of you know, lack of access to capital and things like that. Yeah, and, and energy transfer will simplify, but we don't expect them to convert to a C-Corp. Uh, with both the LP and the GP existing as MLPs, uh, we, we think that they will remain an MLP. And I think it's important to add, too, you, you, know, you don't really want to lose the forest for the trees here. Uh, for s certain companies, uh, it, it does make sense right now to convert because they have a couple moving pieces in terms of uh, cost of capital issues. Maybe they've exhausted a lot of the tax basis of the assets they've dropped down. But ultimately, you know, when you're in the MLP structure, you're deferring that taxation. And I don't think that should be underestimated. It's just for some of these companies at the margin, it, these days it makes sense. But, but ultimately, at least in a vacuum, um, it's always better to not be taxed than to be taxed, of course. And th I think that's what keeps the space persistent. So it, there, the newer the MLP, the less incentive there is to, to go to a C-Corp. Is that basically what you're Generally. Yeah. That's not universal like anything, but broadly it's the case. Okay. Well, Brian, as, as we get through you know, several of these, how is, as a, as a manager of a closed-end fund, do you handle uh, a transaction like Williams? Um, and I'm wondering that over time, as we get more and more of these, to the extent that we do or we don't, um, how do you recapitalize your fund? Uh, do you wind up staying a, a C corp? Do you, mind, you if, if I may, yeah. do, you, do you become a uh, you know investment company? What are what are some of your thoughts on on how the industry is going to adapt to that? Yeah, a lot of that is advanced planning, um, you know, both for us at Tortoise as well as some of our peers um, have largely moved out of the names that were in. I guess for lack of a better term, in danger of combining and moving away from being an MLP, uh, out of our top 10 at least. Um, and, and, and so for most companies, you know, that writing's been on the wall. You, you've got a lot of time to move out of that and, and reassess. Um, you know, and as we also mentioned early on here, you know, we don't see the space on the whole going away, just a couple individual names. Of course, each closing fund out there is going to have some different investment policies. We even have that between some of our funds. Um, you know, we have one fund that is required to own at least 80% of assets in MLPs, uh, another required to own 70%. So I can see over time uh, some, some boards maybe rewriting those policies to, to look at the, the broader universe and incorporate that a little bit more, particularly given that at this point, um, you know, today about 55% of the overall pipeline market cap is outside of MLPs. It's those GPs and, and independents. Um, and with some of these combinations we've been talking about today, we'll see uh, that ratio shift even a little more heavily. Uh, but we're also talking about a, a space that's still going to be um, you know, north of, of $300 billion in market cap. So there's a lot of sandbox to play in nonetheless. So you're saying basically it's okay to pay taxes? No one wants to pay taxes, of course. Um, but I think it, it just depends on your, your trade-offs and the investments you're, you're looking to make. Um, you know, we have 
I think most everyone in here owns most of their assets in companies that are, are paying taxes. And, and another thing that I think is worth mentioning too, um, and, and Williams today is a good example of this with these companies. I know this isn't exactly what you're asking, but it just brought this point to mind, it bears mentioning. Um, even with Williams moving away from being a, an MLP, they've got so much built up depreciation, and this gets back to the idea of multi-billion dollar capital uh, intensive assets. They said today that they're not expecting to pay taxes because of that depreciation until at least 2024. Um, so, so I think that should be considered in, in some of these combinations too. Okie dokie, thank you. I am referring to Master Limited Partnerships, ETFs. Case in point, InfraCap, which is AMZA, or Alarian, which is AMLP. These are very attractive yields and good for seniors to receive their retirement income. But look at the price valuations. The valuations have come down in the last 12 months. Yields have become further more attractive. AMZA is like 25%. AMLP is like over 10%. Are these secure? I know they throw in a lot of cash flow. Then why is the valuation dropping? Well, the NAV of AMZA, for instance, and all ETFs is tied to the market valuation of the underlying holdings. So the sector has performed pretty miserably, and that's reflected in the share price. Now, the, the yield, you know, the cash thrown off by the, the fund is substantial, uh, and that's been some compensation to in investors, but you know the it's been a powerful you know trend through the MLP sector with weak stock performance over recent years. You know it, I understand how difficult it has been for the investment community, and it just seems as though it's been on top of the collapse of crude oil prices. You know, investors have had to learn that these are not all toll road businesses in the safe conservative sense that many of those investors made, took their investment actions. You know, the way we look at it is that toll roads are only good businesses if there's a lot of traffic. If traffic falls off, problems of profitability arise. And that's what happened in the MLP sector with domestic production falling from 9.6 million barrels per day at the peak to 8.5 million barrels, you know, at its low. And that, that is a hard lesson for investors in the sector to learn. And a lot of it was not well understood in advance of that occurrence. Uh, you know, subsequently, it also became apparent that companies in the industry had lost their financial discipline at the peak of the market in 2014. And they were all over levered and they were all, they had all moved to have thin coverage of their distributions with the assumption that they could always access capital cheaply when they needed it. And 
we've been now over the last year, maybe 18 months, they've been taking corrective action, you know, getting religion once they realized that they couldn't survive with the financial structure that they had uh, built in their companies. And it's been tough on investors in this sector. Not only have they learned that there can be operating problems with these companies, but they have also had to witness the companies changing their business approach in that many investors wanted the companies to pay out all their cash flow. And then when times got more difficult, they were faced, managements were faced with the choice of cutting distributions or taking or, or reducing their CapEx programs. Uh, and oftentimes, in, in fact, almost across the board now, we've seen that they've decided that they're not going to pay as much of their free cash flow to their investors as they had before. So, you know, it has been a very hard road. Uh, and, you know, it seems as though most of the corrective financial posturing is behind us. That's what I referred to with these, you know, earlier when I said it with these deals that happened today you know, we're nearing an end of the cycle where to a certain extent we think of it as the companies taking or the industry going through a one-time adjustment in how they're going to uh, run their companies. You know, years ago when the MLP sector first launched, they were typically levered five to six times. At the peak of this most recent cycle, they were levered four to five times. Maybe at the peak of the next cycle, they'll only be levered three to four times. So it's a, they're adopting a different approach to doing business because they want to make it through these cycles. Cycles that, you know, they didn't anticipate either. You know, the crude oil prices fell about 80% or so. And that's when you're operating, operating in an environment where that kind of thing can happen, you have to build your company's financial position in a way that it can be absorbed. And these companies hadn't done that, and they're moving further, or they're moving to do that right now. All right, great. we're actually out of time. I don't know if you want to take the follow-up offline, but thank you very much. I want to get, keep this going.